The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Let's see, so how's that sound to you? Can you hear okay? And some people are really far away back there. If you want to, there's our chairs in here if you want to come inside. You're very welcome to come. Some people prefer to stay out there. So, yes, a little bit louder. How's it for everybody else? Maybe if you come closer, you're sitting in the corner there. If you come closer over here near the speaker, maybe it would be easier for you because everyone else can hear. I know, it needs to be adjusted, but we don't know what, probably the soundboard has to be fine-tuned, and we don't know how to do it. (laughs) So, um, so we'll live with this. So... So I'm uh, in the middle of offering a series of talks on the four foundations of mindfulness. And these are the classic teachings for the, or the, the kind, of a, kind of the core teachings that the Buddha gave that became uh, the instructions for mindfulness that much of the modern mindfulness movement uses. And the instructions there are much more uh, uh, involved in what's usually taught with uh, 13 different, different exercises. Some of them are quite different from each uh, themselves and quite different in how mindfulness is usually taught. And uh, one of them I'm going to do today, which is the instructions in developing awareness, mindfulness, by contemplating corpses. So why would that be a mindfulness exercise? The, um, uh, most people associate mindfulness with kind of a non-discursive, aware, non-judgmental mindfulness awareness of what's happening in the present moment. And this particular exercise seems to be more of a contemplation or visualization um, practice, which seems very different than what we usually think of mindfulness. And one of the reasons why it's included in this um, uh, set of instructions is what we're trying to do with the practices these practices of mindfulness is to cultivate a heightened sense of awareness. And uh, uh, it turns out that spending time with the corpse uh, is one of the ways to develop a heightened sense of awareness. I see some action out there. Is that better out there? Ah, it was off, huh? Okay. So, um, so I want to give a little bit of background kind of little story, personal story. When I was uh, about 20 or 21, I lived in a, on a farm, a small dairy farm. And while I was there, the, uh, the two farmers who owned the farm uh, took the occasion to take a vacation for seven days, and I was left in charge of the farm. And one of the... Uh, just me and the gals. With the gals were the cows. <laughs> and we were quite intimate. <laughs> As I had to milk them regularly. And um, 
one of the, uh, so it, it turned out in my life, you know, I was 20, 21 years old, I had never spent seven days alone. It was the first time in my life. And the only person I saw during those seven days was down the road, I saw the mail carrier come once. And, um, and uh, otherwise there was no one. And I would go out in the morning and take the cows out to pasture during the morning and leave them out there and go out and get them in the evening to come back and milk and otherwise took care of the farm. And uh, I had a grand time. It was a wonderful time. But one of the uh, aspects of this was um, as the days went along and near the end of that time, I started noticing that everything that I looked at sparkled. And uh, just like everything stood out in highlight, I saw the details of things that usually I walked right by and never noticed. And everything kind of sparkled. And it felt really nice. There's that, that kind of, there was something about just being present and seeing the world in this alive way was new for me. And then um, I also became um, highly sensitive to my thoughts. I'd never kind of been so aware that I was thinking as I was during this silent week. And my thoughts also sparkled. It was kind of like everything that I was aware of, kind of like I had like a special, I don't know, sparkle or light or clarity to it that was quite kind of satisfying to see, very happy to see. And I felt very peaceful. And what was happening to me, that as my social life disappeared and the usual asking activities of the social life kind of stopped, Uh, And I was just left in this calm, quiet environment that was in some ways like being on retreat. Um, My uh, my attachment involvement in my thinking decreased. And as it decreased, my awareness of the present moment and my awareness itself became stronger. And that heightened sense of awareness was deeply satisfying. Uh, And I felt so, I felt so like, like kind of a feeling like everything is perfect was kind of the feeling of it. Even though maybe if I used my logic, I could have easily decided about many things were not very perfect. But this was not a logical event. It was just this settling of the mind and this awakening of this heightened sense of clarity that was so nice. It was so nice that it became my task, uh, my, my quest after I left that farm, uh, to learn how to be alone that way with others. I didn't see that I wanted to be a hermit, but I wanted to learn to be with people and be able to maintain that heightened sense of awareness in relationship to other people. Because when my friends came back to the farm, it quickly went away. While I was there also, um, on this farm, I was present for the first birth of some creature that I'd ever seen in my life. The birth of a cow, a calf. And that was pretty, uh, pretty special as well. The, the calf was being born, his head was coming out first, and uh, there was this kind of sack around the head, like a saran wrap or something. You can kind of see through it. And as the head came out, uh, suddenly the, the, uh, you know, the head looking through the saran wrap looked like it was asleep, and, uh, or not alive. And then the sack broke. And then suddenly the eyes opened up and this calf took a breath. And it was like, wow, you know, life. It just got, it just happened in front of me. It's just like, boom, where did that come from? And, uh, and again, logically, I could have told you where it came from. I watched where it came from. But, uh, but there was something special about seeing it 
get born that was um, stopped my mind. And again, this heightened sense of awareness, like time stopped, all my concerns stopped, everything, anything that everything of the universe existed right there, just there, because it was such a special moment. Um, and then uh, we had, um, uh, there had been some sheep that had uh, somehow escaped, uh, maybe the year before, and spent about a year living in the hills, in the mountains around the farm, and through the winter, cold winter, in Nor- in, um, and um, and in the sometime in the spring, uh, we decided that they were, you know, they would belong to the farm, the farmers. We decided that we would go get them, capture them, and that was a huge kind of comedy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, trying to corral them and catch them, and and um, and so we did finally, and we brought them back. Well, I think we I don't know if we got all of them. We got one of them back at least, and we brought it back. And um, and what we didn't know was that um, sheep that have escaped into the wild and kind of gotten wild don't do well when they come back into captivity, and so um, the one we caught died not too long after, and so then I saw death, and there again in a different way, kind of a little more heavier way. It was also like time stopped, like everything, seeing this, this, this sheep, you know, this boom, you know, it's like, you know, it was a very special moment for um, this heightened sense of presence and awareness. So this, a uh, few days ago on Friday, um, I took a, a bunch of people, uh, to, Samir here went with us, I don't know, I don't think anybody else went, but uh, to um, the anatomy lab at a at a local community college to look at cadavers. And the people I brought were people who are being trained to do chaplaincy, to offer spiritual care in places like hospitals and hospices and prisons and places like that. And so every year we take them to this uh, anatomy lab for a few hours and uh, we see corpses in various states of not decay, but in various uh, uh, states of dissection, being dissected. We saw one that had not been dissected yet. We saw one that was quite taken apart. And we saw one that was mostly the skin was taken off and see all the muscles. And uh, some of these people, chaplains in training, wanted to... uh, They wanted to know, why are you taking us to the anatomy lab to see corpses? What, what, is, it, how does this, what is this to do with that uh, chaplaincy training? And uh, I didn't answer the question. I just turned the question back on them. What do you think, I said. And they came up with great answers uh, on their own. But uh, one of the answers is that um, chaplains need to have dealt with some of the reactions they have to be in the presence of death um, before they enter the hospital and are supposed to offer spiritual care for people who are dying or in a situation where someone has died. And so they have to kind of, kind of be able to be present and comfortable, comfortable is the right word, but not reactive to it and be able to be maybe one of the calmer people in the room at that time because you can't really offer much spiritual care if you're the most agitated one. And so to be able to kind of meet the reaction, see what's going on, uh, but also to be able to contemplate 
what is this thing about life and death? What is it that we're being present for? Who are we? Um, to be able to kind of drop into some other, contemplate or consider some of these deep questions about life and death. Um, and maybe uh, begin kind of seeing people in a different way than you would see if you don't have that. And um, the um, many years ago I did a, a weekend re- kind of workshop on death and dying with Stephen Levine, who just died a few weeks ago. And, um, and he was uh, and one of the, uh, he was a master at uh, what he did. It was a quite awesome, quite amazing to watch him. But um, what was most impactful for me was that um, <clears throat> before it started, you know, I, I'd been a hippie and then I'd been a, a Zen monk and before going there. And, um, and so I found myself in Marin County with all these, what looked to me like ordinary people. <laughs> Completely ordinary people, whatever that is. And, um, you know, in the courtyard before we went in for the workshop. And so, you know, all the, these are nice people, ordinary people, living ordinary life. And then we went into the workshop and they started to speak. And their lives were not ordinary. Their lives were. Um, you know, uh, their child had died, or they were dying, or story after story of uh, death and dying came out, and these people, most of the people there were really confronting something very profound and important, and lots of grief and lots of powerful things. And Stephen Levine would meet them, fully present, and somehow had the ability to counsel them, or guide them, or support them, to somehow work through, or resolve, or touch something really profound in them that had to be touched. And I was kind of wide-eyed, and after that experience, I no longer think people are ordinary. You know, just, I don't know, run-of-the-mill people, just people, <laughs> whatever. Now I don't take people for granted, because, you know, I had, I had, you know, who knows what's going on in the depths of people and their life experience and what their struggles are and their, their issues are. And, you know, you can't really tell just from the surface. So now I feel much more, much more, I don't know if cautious is the right word, but much more respectful of, you know, I don't know this person. Let's find out. So, um, um, so going to the, see these cadavers on Friday, um, the anatomist who was guiding us to it, it was quite a generous, very generous and very... Uh, kind person, very supportive person. And one of the first things she told us was the bodies we were going to see were, were bodies that uh, represented the offering, the gift of someone who wanted their body to be used for education or for uh, research or for medical purposes. And so the context of going into the anatomy lab was one of kind of respecting the generosity of the people who had died and what they were offering us to do. And so there was, I wouldn't say necessarily it was a reverence, it was reverence in going in to see them, but there was a kind of, kind of real care and attention to what we were doing. And, and I, stood, I, sat, I, you know, I came in and looked at these bodies that were there. And um, the anatomist told us how the bodies got there, and we could kind of calculate they probably died about nine months before. 
that takes about six months to prepare a body for, for to be, and to go into an anatomy lab. So six months, you know, it takes a while. So about nine, six to nine months before. And, um, and I thought, I bet these people have relatives and friends who are still alive. And maybe if I'm walking down the street, maybe I'll walk by them. Maybe our paths will cross. And that's kind of one of the reflections that went by my, in my head this year when I went to the anatomy lab. And again, I felt all of these, these connections and people and how special it is, you know, to be present for someone when they're alive, how special it is to be present for someone when they pass. And so it became kind of a greater kind of sense of reverence or care or, or appreciation for just life and the connections and the relationships and the friendships and the, all these things that can be there. So some of the uh, chaplain students that went, it became a, um, a powerful contemplation about the difference between being alive and being dead, between a living person and a corpse. Because it's really clear that a, you look at a corpse that's been dead for nine months, that um, well-preserved but still dead, is uh, there's no life in it. You, you touch them and they're cold and, um, and there's, you know, the spark of life is not there. What, what I think about is a spark of awareness. Consciousness is not there. There's various uh, theories about what happens to consciousness when we die, but certainly whatever consciousness is, it's not there in that body anymore. And if consciousness is not so connected to the body, because, you know, that, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but it's, I have it now. You have it now. And there's something about being in the presence of death and, and to considering, oh, I'm going to be like that one day. One day, I'm going to be just matter, lifeless, inanimate matter. And uh, laying there probably in some, laying somewhere. Most people are laying for a while once they're dead. <laughs> and um, you might even, you know, so... It might be, you might be in a morgue, you might be all kinds of places you might end up. And, um, and so what is it we have now? What's the difference? What is that that makes it, what's unique about being alive now? And some people, when they contemplate this, start feeling much more, kind of feel kind of the reverence or the specialness or the spark of what it's like to be conscious now. It's very different than thinking about where you've been, where you've come from, what's happened to you in your life, or where you're going, and what might happen to you now. Those kinds of thoughts, in some ways, take you away from the spark of awareness or attention, which is only present in the present moment. Something that we often overlook. And to have the sense of the specialness of being alive and present is quite a powerful thing. Some people, when they uh, come and in, in, encounter death and dying, uh, uh, and it, uh, is to, uh, they reflect about their own lives. They think they reflect about their own death. And in the context of death and life, how do you want to live now? And some people begin changing their priorities in their life when they uh, think about they're going to die. I, I led a death and dying weekend workshop many years ago. And um, 
we did some exercises and various things. And about a few years later, I met a woman who had been in it. And she'd been kind of a high-level executive type person, some non, very, very big nonprofit. And um, she said to me, oh, Gil, thank you so much for that uh, workshop you led. Uh, uh, I came back from that weekend and resigned from my job. <laughs> and the first thing I did was gulp. <laughs> oh, no. But, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> And, um, and she said, no, I'm so happy. This is the best thing that could have happened to me. Um, she, re- she was able to retire. She was getting close to the age, I guess, it was the age she could retire. And she said, you know, it was the best thing I could have done. I realized my priorities changed and it no longer made sense for me to kind of engage in this kind of work. I wanted to spend the last years of my life doing something which was much more meaningful for me than what I was doing that work. So sometimes the encounter with death changes people's priorities. And what's most important uh, then stands out. Why wait? Do it now. Sometimes in the, co- the, in the context of death, um, uh, we view issues in our life in a different way. The resentments we have, the hurts that we hold, the desires we have, the ambitions we have, the addictions we have, the, uh, you know, all kinds of things start standing out in highlight. And the question is, is it worth holding on to these things? Is it, is, it, is it worth it to be under the burden of certain kinds of attachments, certain kind of, of um, ways of thinking? And this is where the wonderful way that for sometimes in the presence of death, the thinking mind stops, the usual thinking mind stops. You know, I don't know if you, some of you might have been with someone who's dying or soon after they're die, they're dead. Uh, most most people find, that's not true for everyone but most people find that um, that um, you know you're, you're not sitting there at the bedside of someone who's just died and you're wondering where are good places to change your oil or your car because your oil needs to be changed and you haven't done it for a while and you wonder how long you can go without changing it and you know you don't kind of go down that track very long you know it's a lot of the petty concerns or small concerns or big concerns stop and there's a whole different kind of heightened awareness and presence that maybe is some, can be something like what happened to me on that farm when I was left alone a week. It's kind of like being on retreat. And to feel that and sense that and to appreciate that this is valuable. This is a, a, a very satisfying way to be alive. To be alive in this clarity, without attachments, without distractions, preoccupations. To be fully present and awake now to be here with your awareness, the spark of it, without fear, without considering the future, and even considering that we're going to die, just here in a full way, is very powerful. So this change of our priority, this development of heightened awareness in the contact, in the contact with death, is, uh, I think is one of the reasons why in these 13 exercises, for cultivating heightened awareness, this mindfulness, um, the contemplation of death is included as, as one of the exercises. So with as an, as an introduction, I'll read you the contemplation. And um, the, um, and this, uh, the way it's presented is, um, it's not presented as if you really go to a charnel ground. In ancient India, there are charnel grounds. Not everyone could be afford to be cremated. 
because you know that takes a lot of wood and stuff. So it was very common for people just to be taken out to this uh, charnel grounds on the edge, outside, I guess, far enough away from people lived, and they'd leave bodies there, and then nature would take care of it. What was going to happen there? But this is to imagine this. Um, it's interesting how, and it's, remember, this is this was written in India. And I think India, even to this day, compared to and probably what it's like in much of the world until recent times, death was much more part of ordinary life. It wasn't so so foreign to ordinary life. Um, I grew up in the suburbs, very much in suburbs, and didn't see anything like death um, until I was 11, and I went to um, uh, happened to go to Kathmandu, and there they were carrying a young child through the streets on a stretcher. Uh, down to the river to do the cremation. And I'd never seen anything like that. So uh, this kind of going to seeing a charnel ground, knowing a charnel ground, it might seem strange to us, but it was probably a little more common in the ancient world. So this is more of a visualization than actually going there. So, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter, a person compares this same body, one's own body, thus. This body too, my body too, is of the same nature. It'll be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. So this is the reflection. You visualize this kind of corpse, and then you think, oh, this will happen to me too. And this, this is the, 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 the practice that's being offered. So this refrain appears after each of these like five or six visualizations. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. As though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, and various kinds of worms, a person compares this same body with the following thoughts. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Again, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews or a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood held together with sinews or a skeleton without flesh and blood held together with sinews, or um, a, a, a bunch of disconnected bones scattered in all directions, here a hand bone, there a foot bone, there a shin bone, there a thigh bone, here a hip bone, there a backbone, here a rib bone, there a breast bone, here an arm bone, there a shoulder bone, there a neck bone, there a jaw bone, here a tooth, there the skull. A person compares this same body thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that faith. And then one last one. As though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, bones bleached white, the color of shells, or the bones heaped up more than a year old, or bones rotted and crumbled to dust. A person compares this same body with it. 
this body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. So it kind of goes through a whole process of decay, starting from just, you know, a day or two old corpse to just being going to dust. And um, this too is our fate. And it's somehow. And so to contemplate this in a way that's not morbid, to contemplate this in a way that's not depressing, but rather contemplate this in such a way that um, it helps us really be present for this life we have right here. To really kind of take this life in more serious. So we really kind of give ourselves to be fully present. They say that um, the people who are fully engaged in life are the ones that are least afraid of death. It's kind of interesting kind of uh, statistics that researchers have found out. But to be fully here, to this life, this moment, um, what is it to be alive? What is it to be conscious? Do we know that we're going to live some way after, be alive or continue after we die? Maybe we don't, maybe we won't. If you believe in rebirth, maybe you'll come back as an earthworm. And, uh, you know, so what kind of, uh, you know, you don't know what kind of consciousness you'll have then. So what we have now is, in Buddhism, considered very special. To be, a, to be born as a human being is considered one of the most, or the most precious births to have. And so what is it to be a person? How do we, how, what is it to squander this opportunity of being a person, a human being? What is it that we can discover? Not through what we do, not through accomplishments, not through who we're connected to, but what is it we can wake up to? What sense of aliveness and presence and more importantly, a sense of freedom can we wake up to so that this moment, as we walk through this world and this life, this moment that we are uh, find um, something the kind of clear, maybe the some kind of something the, the clarity, the preciousness, the the heightened awareness, the satisfaction, the peace, the at-homeness that I experienced when I was on that farm in Norway, you know, or that you've probably some of you experienced in other ways. So. One of the exercises in the mindfulness exercise to help with the developing mindfulness is to do this contemplation practice of contemplating, thinking about, or visualizing death, the corpse, the process of decay. Some of you might find this interesting to do. You might find it helpful. Some of you might find it unhelpful to do. And uh, there's no requirement to do it. the approach in Buddhism is you do what's helpful, not what is unhelp- what's unhelpful. But uh, you might see if this contemplation of corpses and death and decay, whether there's some way of contemplating it, considering it, that uh, is for your betterment, supports you in some important way. And you might even find uh, good friends who do- doesn't mind talking about these things and explore this topic of death, decay, corpses, finality of life and see if you can have a conversation and explore it and and have a conversation to see what is it about how we can really 
face up to or face this issue of our mortality and what's going to happen to us so that um, it's for our betterment. It enhances our life rather than diminishes it. So those are my thoughts on this exercise of mindfulness. We have about 10 minutes. If any of you would like to ask some questions or make some comments or express some reactions to this, you're welcome to. You can use the mic. Hello? Okay. Um, Having just lost both of my parents, and, well, one one more recently, um, and contemplating the body of a parent and knowing most of their life having seen it um, my question is how to shape the thoughts that tend towards suffering as a result of the death and the loss because what I hear in me is resentment that I have to suffer this loss and so it gets back to how to approach that kind of yeah. suffering yeah I think you know it's important to be very very respectful <clears throat> for the loss especially loss of a parent um, the grief all the different feelings that can come. There can be a wide spectrum of emotions that come up as a result. They're all allowed. They all, they're all important to allow them space and time and not be in a hurry to you know, get rid of them or fix them or something like that because you don't know what's working through you. You don't know what's, what needs to kind of digest and percolate. And, and a lot of what the mindfulness practice does in this regard is to uh, help us identify ways in which we interfere with the grieving process interfere with what we're feeling, what's going on. Oh, I shouldn't feel resentful to my parents after all. You know, I shouldn't be resentful, for example, someone might think. Or some people are just so happy, finally. And, you know, and that's, you're, not supposed, you're not supposed to think that way about your, you know, your beloved parents, that you're finally, you know, don't have the burden having to care for them or something. Anything's allowed, so you kind of get out of the way. Get out of the way. Don't judge it, don't second guess it, don't try to fix it and give it time and support. And sometimes it's helpful to have other people you talk to and you know, offer your support who can offer that kind of presence who are comfortable with not trying to you know, fix things when you're grieving. So I think that's really important. Um, and then in addition, what you can do, and a little bit more directly in relationship to your question, is sometimes it's useful to, um, um, not as a way of pushing away the thoughts or resentment you have, but to see if there's other ways that you can look upon the death, especially of someone who is a parent, right? In what way might it be a gift 
that they died. So what way might, what, what kind of gift is that in their death towards their daughter? An answer that comes is that their whole life was a gift. Mm. And how does it, what does that perspective do for you? Um, I guess it allows that there can be an ending. an ability to appreciate what was instead of resent that it no longer is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, it'll be, as this, as this uh, exercise says, uh, you'll, you'll also have the same fate. This will happen to you. And uh, I don't know how your parents died, but uh, sometimes um, uh, uh, the death of a parent is also a showing the way. That, you know, so maybe it prepares you for getting your time. I mean, I think it's one of the gifts, uh, gifts a parent can give to their children is to, uh, is to help them show them that dying is a natural part of life and Show them that they're not afraid. If, if, if they aren't afraid, if they are afraid, maybe that's a different, different lesson. Or they're not angry at dying, but show them how to meet and face death in a, in a, in a peaceful way, in a beautiful way. And, uh, and then, then, then death becomes a gift. Uh, yeah. You can't hear? Or you can't hear out there? Oh, um, I see. We're just about done. I want to just finish one more thing and then we'll stop. And I saw, you know, death is, you never know when death comes and so the death of the electric equipment. Um, I've told this story a number of times. So, um, uh, I, I, I counseled a woman who was dying of cancer and she um, had, an, I think, a 10, 11 year old son or daughter and she was really angry at having to die because of because of her daughter mostly it makes some sense right it's some terrible thing to happen to a child and I told her that um, uh, the, the most one of the most important influences she's going to have on her child's life was uh, how she died and if she died angry that would have probably affect the child's view of life for the rest of the child's life but if she could die peacefully then uh, that would have a different conditioning different lesson that the child would get and so um, some weeks after she died, her husband called me up and explained that uh, she had died and she died peacefully in bed. And uh, when she had died, the father went out with the child out into the garden, they got a flower and brought it back and put it on her chest. And when I heard that, I thought that probably she had, heard, she had taken to heart what I said and she had figured out how to die in such a way, hopefully sincerely, so that it could be a gift to her daughter rather than a burden. So, you know, we're all going to die and some people lead the way. 
and hopefully they can show us the way and it can be a gift. So I don't know about your, your parents, but one way or the other, even if they had a hard time dying, uh, there's something about that also that becomes a gift if we learn the lessons of that. So I don't know if that addresses your question well enough, and, but I, ho- I hope that I was le- at least respectful of your question. So, thank you all.